Thank you, and thank you, Ms. Carter, for opening court today. And we thank uh, our clerk, Gene Sore, for being here, and Richard Rimmelar, our court marshal. Good morning. My name is uh, Judge Chris Hill, and I'll be presiding over the session of court today. To my right is Judge Hunter Murphy, and to my left is Judge Allison Riggs. We have one case on the calendar. It's the state of North Carolina versus Diddy, and I understand the state will be going first. Am I, am I correct about that? Okay, so there'll be a the state, then the defendant, then the state, and then the defendant, right? Okay, so uh, you ready to proceed? Go ahead. Sort of let me know how much time you're going to use and all that. So I'm sorry, Chris. Do you have a moment? Mr. Sword, do we have uh, legal pads, pencils? Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Rob Ennis, and I represent the state in this matter. The case is before the court based on the state's petition seeking certiorari review of Judge Ammon's June 2022 order granting the defendant's motion to enforce a proposed plea bargain the state had offered and withdrawn in 2018. And the case is also before the court based on this court having granted the defendant's conditional petition for writ of certiorari seeking review of Judge Hill's prior order, which had previously considered and denied the defendant's first motion to enforce the same 2018 proposed plea offer. That said, there are two primary issues before this court. Um, and I apologize, I forgot to ask for 10 minutes um, for rebuttal and response, please. Um, but there are two primary issues before the court. The first is a jurisdictional one, and it's whether Judge Ammons lacked authority to grant defendant's second motion to enforce the plea agreement after Judge Hill had already denied the first motion. Under well-settled North Carolina precedent, reconsidering or overruling one Superior Court judge's order is only permissible where the party seeking to do so makes a sufficient showing of a substantial change of circumstances that presently warrants a new disposition. Here, because defendant may, failed to make that showing and Judge Ammons failed to make findings to support determination, uh, that there was a substantial change of circumstances, Judge Ammons' order should be vacated. Under that, there should be um, substantial change in circumstances. Does it need to be shown in the motion and alleged in the motion, or is it fine for the trial court to start hearing the motion and then hear arguments on if there's been a substantial change of circumstances? I, and I, I guess I ask that, and this is kind of um, preview a question I might have for the defense. I don't see much of a difference between the two physical motions. There is when we get to the argument stage, but did that need to be shown um, at the motion stage, or, or can it wait till it's actually being heard for the trial court to determine if it has jurisdiction to keep going forward or to enter a ruling? Uh, Judge Murphy, that's a great question. To be honest, I don't know that I've found a case that has um, precluded or that has required such a showing in initial motion, um, but it does seem to make sense from a practical standpoint that the moving party would have the burden of, if, as if this were a civil action, at least stating allegations that it then would be able to prove um, at a hearing requesting reconsideration of another judge's order. Um, and again, so I've not, I've not found a case law that uh, requires that, but it seems to me like that there, there might be out there, and that's probably a good one. Let me ask you a question. Is a pure question of law whether or not uh, this, this agreement is enforceable or not? Is a pure question of law? Uh, Your Honor, yes. Okay, I, I so do let me ask you. So, when the motion was denied earlier, should that have been immediately appealed, or is there any argument that the appeal is not properly before us? Um, it's interlocutory at the time. So, is right, the appeal Your properly Honor. before us? Uh, well, it, it's probably before you now, based on your having granted a writ of certiorari. Um, but at the time, he wouldn't, or she wouldn't have been able to appeal because in criminal cases, there is no right to appeal interlocutory orders. Um, but she could have filed a petition for her certiorari as she did in response to the state's petition for her certiorari from Judge Ammons' order. Does it really matter whether or not the second judge had jurisdiction to overrule the first judge? Because we're dealing with that first appeal anyway. It's a pure question of law. So is it just an academic question whether or not the second judge had the authority to do that or not? Does it really matter? 
resolving the merits of this appeal? Because the issues before us anyway on the first appeal is a pure question of law. Um, Your Honor, I, I think it would matter only insofar as I guess it would be easier for this court to adjudicate if it were to vacate Judge Ammons's order and then affirm Judge Hill's order on the merits issue um, because of the showings at the first order before Judge Hill versus the showing at the second order before Judge Ammon. Um, but the merits issue is the same, and so that's why You're we saying have, the showing in the second is different than the showings in the first? Well, it's, it's Would only... Would that defeat your argument that there wasn't a change of circumstances in? I apologize for my choice of language. The showings weren't different. I just mean the, the defendant's um, a, production of evidence was different at the first hearing and then the second hearing before Judge Ammons. The same material dispositive facts were exactly the same before Judge Hill and Judge Ammons, and that were uh, the state made no promises until its January 2018 proposed plea arrangement had been offered. So any alleged act of detrimental reliance that occurred before that um, is irrelevant to the question of whether she had a right to enforce a proposed plea arrangement that had never been accepted by a trial court. Well, so let me ask you that. Is it the state's position that as a matter of law, you can never have detrimental reliance before judicial approval of a plea? Your Honor, I think it would be hard for a, a defendant to show. Um, and how the law developed in this, I think it might be an open question. But essentially, it seems like the North Carolina Supreme Court in Marlowe held that, in Hudson, starting in Hudson, held that because uh, proposed plea arrangement requires judicial approval under Section 15A, 1023B before it becomes effective or valid as a matter of law, then a defendant cannot enforce any proposed plea arrangement that has not become an actual contract yet. Um, but it just seems to me that that's not, doesn't accord with sort of the reality of the fact that sometimes uh, a prosecutor, a district attorney, for good reason, may want to secure the cooperation of a witness for time-sensitive reasons. What if they want to find a missing person while they're still alive? What if they want to bring closure to the family? This is why we, you know, give the DAs, the Constitution gives the DAs this power, but then if a witness cooperates, then is it your position that that witness is doing, the, the defendant or, or the cooperating person is doing so foolishly and just anything they say that might help bring that person home or bring um, closure to the family, they're just doing it at their own risk? Well, Your Honor, I think there's a, a important difference analytically, I guess, between what I would maybe characterize there as like a pre-plea agreement um, versus a defendant's ability to enforce a proposed plea arrangement that hasn't been accepted by... Well, what's the basis of in law for that? Because, I mean, you have exchanges back and forth between um, the defense counsel and the DA. Def the, the DA's office wants to... Um, wants to talk to her. You have in the second hearing the in, in interviewer saying, we didn't think she was the principal. We wanted to talk to her and get some information. Like, isn't that a pre-plea? What's the legal distinction between what you're offering as a pre-plea and what happened here? Well, um, maybe pre-plea wasn't the best word to use. I, well, I, by pre-plea, I guess I mean if promises were made for exchange benefits prior to the actual acceptance of a guilty plea. In a typical plea breach situation, we see the defendant has accepted, the trial court accepts the defendant's guilty plea, and then later at sentencing or some other time the prosecution breaches it, the defendant, that violates the defendant's constitutional rights, he's allowed to a remedy, which typically is either specific performance or rescission. Um, in this situation, we don't have any actual entry of a guilty plea that would bind the prosecution to whatever charge concessions or sentencing recommendations it may have negotiated during plea bargaining. Um, right, but I mean, whether or not we, it's in the Ammons order or in another hearing, depending on the jurisdictional question, we have what seems to be largely unrebutted evidence from her attorney and from the investigator that all of this was conducted with the promise that there was going to be a plea agreement. And when the DA conflicted out and stepped back, he told the, the defense counsel, I hope the new, new prosecuting attorney will um, honor the plea agreement, but I don't know. Like, 
promises. Those right. feel like promises. Well, Your Honor, I think there's a difference between a promise to engage in plea negotiations or offer a plea versus a promise for a specific plea to accessory after the fact and a mitigated range sentence. All, all of the trial court's findings, Judge Amos's findings, established the state never made any promises. Sure, the state requested, perhaps, the defendant to, you know, not for push for an indictment or things like things like that, but there was no there was no expectation that in return the defendant would receive a plea of accessory after the fact to murder and a particular mitigated rage sentence. Uh, I think the findings even say the attorney was led to believe that proceeding in such a manner would aid in plea negotiations. I guess the difference to me is that there's no there's no materialized promise from which any defendant could reasonably rely. So the state never made a promise like if you cooperate with us, we'll, we'll enter a plea agreement. This still has to be approved by the court. There was no, you're saying there not, was no fact, there's no promise. No, not in the record that I've seen. The, Judge Ammons made no finding about that. The, all of the, the times that Judge Ammons talks about what the state did, it was the state requested or the state asked. It never said the state requested you do this Disposino interview and then we're going to give you a particular plea. Um, maybe it was, and, and see that's, I guess like, Attorney Conlon testified that his experience was, oh, the DA's office typically in first-degree murder cases that are still in district court, they'll ask for two things, an SBI or a, a polygraph exam and then a debriefing with either the police chief or the police investigator or the DA's investigator. So what the defense counsel did was try to instigate these things and, you know, oh, well, you know what, I'll do a polygraph exam before even asked by the state. But didn't the fact that the ultimate plea pro produced by the DA's office matched with what he expected, the polygraph, the interview, et cetera. Like, doesn't that suggest a meeting of the minds? I think it does at the time that the plea bargain is offered. I mean, there's evidence in um, the first and second hearing, Attorney Conlon is very clear that the state, I think he says, uh, very specifically never promised me anything um, before we did these things. I did them anticipatorily. Um, and then also, whenever it's discussed with the Disposino interview, Conlon, when he's describing the timeline, says things like, um, following the interview with Disposino and the two polygraphs, what happens next? Conlon was asked. He replies, uh, it's my studying that my understanding sometime after Mr. Disposino had a meeting with Mr. West and where he indicated who he thought the principal was and exactly what Diddy's level of culpability was. And that's when we started a conversation about accessory after the fact and to cooperate and testify truthfully. And that's in the 2022 hearing before Judge Ammons, transcript page 50. Um, so, so we have the trial court's findings here, Judge Ammons' findings never establish a promise was made that if the defendant actually showed, uh, made a sufficient showing under a promissory estoppel principles would uh, compel that promise to be enforced. There was no promise, so <laughs> let me back up. In order for the defendant to succeed on a detrimental sort of reliance claim here, it seems she would need to establish there was an actual concrete promise made, which the findings established there was not one until the January 2018 plea offer from the state. Second, she would have to show that such a reliance was reasonable, and under the North Carolina Supreme Court precedent in Hudson, any time a proposed plea bargain contains a sentencing recommendation, it's not reasonable for a defendant to rely on the terms of that particular plea and the defendant would have to show tangible prejudice. And here, there's no findings about any sort of tangible prejudice showing. The trial court found, found detrimental reliance based on um, examples like her submitting to the Disposino interview, but again, that occurred before the state had actually offered a, the plea. So the, that the defendant submitted to the Disposino interview because he thought it would aid in plea negotiations, even if he had proposed the plea the state didn't agree to any plea until it actually submitted the offer January 2018. Doesn't um, that suggest that they wanted to see what she had to, how she did on the polygraph and how, how she did in that interview before they committed, but then she performed as promised and they followed up with an actual plea agreement? Well, yeah, Your Honor, it, it, it could suggest that, but if you look at the transcripts, um, you know, it was the, it was Miss Diddy who, was asking the state for these things, like, oh, here's a polygraph exam, 
um, would you now consider this particular plea offer? And the state was like, sure, we'll consider anything that you want to give to us. Yeah, but then they came back and asked for their SBI or whoever polygraph. It wasn't like, that was good enough, end and, of story. Right, and so in the 2018 hearing before Judge Hill, Attorney Conlon explains there was one question that came back inconclusive, and when he explained that to the state, the state responded, okay, will you provide a polygraph examination with our examiner? Um, and that question again came back inconclusive. Sleep. And then the re oh, I was just gonna say, and then the results came back. Um, then the results came to the state and Attorney Conlon is continuing to ask the state, hey, so are we any closer to a sort of plea deal? Um, and so I guess that's the kind of the theme of this case. It, there was no, it wasn't a situation in which the state was trying to um, get a cooperating witness to prosecute somebody, like a drug crime, like, oh, if we get this one um, accused to testify for us, maybe we'll be able to... So your argument is um, she did a lot of things in anticipation of the plea agreement, and once the state gave her this plea offer, she didn't do anything else. So there was nothing that she did in reliance to the agreement she actually had. If, she, if she'd done, yeah, we'll give you this plea agreement, but you got to do a polygraph, blah, blah, but she did the polygraph and hoped to get the agreement, is what you're saying. That's exactly right, Your Honor. Yes, you said it a lot more eloquently than I had before, but that's that's the point I'm trying to get at. Uh, there was no acts of alleged detrimental reliance that occurred after what you could say a promise was made. Is that the only legal basis that is being argued whether or not this plea agreement is enforceable, whether or not there was a constitutional uh, detrimental alliance due process? That's the only argument. That's that, the only basis that I understand this before us is whether or not. That's my understanding. So Attorney Conlon, uh, at first, and also the next attorney, Ms. Kimry, both raised Sixth Amendment claims. Um, and I, my prediction is that the Sixth Amendment argument there, in their motions, they said, you know, revocation of the plea violates my Sixth Amendment rights. I predict it's because they had cited Cooper, the Fourth Circuit case, which Mabry later overturned, as explained in the state's brief. Um, and in the Cooper case, Cooper creates a constitutional right to fundamental fairness arising from substantive due process and the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. In Mabry versus Madison, when they overruled Cooper, they expressly rejected any conception that there was a Sixth Amendment right at all applicable in a situation where the state offers a plea, the defendant accepts it, and then the state withdraws the plea. The critical period from a constitutional standpoint is the actual acceptance of a defendant's guilty plea and entry of judgment. That's the point at which the state is bound by any promises it made during plea negotiations. That never happened in this case. So it was not proper for the trial court to try to enforce any promises that were made um, with respect to the particular terms of the plea before actual entry of judgment. Does the state contest the fact that she, you know, waived her right to, to silence and agreed to, you know, keep things, uh, in, give things to the DA's investigator that would otherwise she'd have been entitled to keep confidential between her and her attorney during that November interview? Well, Your Honor, the state, it, the state doesn't contest that that happened uh, in the Disposino interview, but um, what the evidence shows at the hearings is that she made the exact, we have the proffer in the record from Attorney Conlon in um, August or June 2016. The same exact facts that were in the proffer is what she told Disposino during the interview. I think Attorney Conlon confirmed that when, she, when he was crossed about it at the second hearing before Judge Ammons. Does the record show how long that interview lasted? Um, I'm sorry, I thought it said it on the front page of the supplement, but it does not, just as the time it starts. But I think it was about maybe two hours, I feel like I remember someone saying. It doesn't seem like that, though, because it was only 93 pages of transcript, double-spaced. I would expect it would have lasted shorter than that, but... And does the record show how long her proffer was? Um, yes, the proffer is in the record, and it was maybe two pages. But the, the material points of the proffer were that Miss Diddy, um, well, well, she did not, I guess why that's relevant is that the trial court here determined she was prejudiced because she gave incorporatory statements during the Disposino interview. Um, but none of the statements 
none of the statements incriminate her against the charges that she's currently facing, which is the, it's the test of prejudice that we're, um, that we're operating under when we're talking about detrimental reliance. It has to be detrimental to the prosecution's case, or to the defendant's defense against the prosecution's case. The prosecution has not charged her with accessory after the fact to murder. She's been facing murder charges since she was first arrested. <clears throat> she's been facing one first degree murder charge and felony child abuse inflicting serious injury charge since she's first been arrested. Her proffer essentially says, I left my child home alone with someone else. Um, I came back and we went to the hospital, but she did not understand the extent of the injuries or uh, the cause of the death until after she was arrested. Did the, I know the state didn't, or the appointed DA didn't use the interview um, or its transcript with Disposio, uh, Disposio, something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Um, but was there evidence put on in her first trial about deceptiveness, about whether Mr. Kiefer had been there? Was, was that part of the case put on in her first trial? I'm going to be honest, Your Honor, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know what was put on at the first trial, but we don't have any evidence of that in this record. In the record. Mm -hmm. Let me ask a question. You talk a, a good bit, uh, page 37 of your appellant brief, um, about the constitutional authority lying with the district attorney regarding pleas. What is constitutional authority for the, um, the conflict prosecutor to have withdrawn the plea? begin with um, what is the Constitution? If the Constitution gives the authority to the district attorney even if there's statutes saying we can have conflict prosecutors what's the constitutional authority for conflict prosecutors um, I think it would it would be it would derive from originally the the DA um, himself the constitutional authority to the district attorney and then the district attorney from the laws of the state has the authority to assign cases out to other prosecutors Um, I'd, I'd like to reserve, and if there's no further questions, I'll reserve okay. the remaining and you have time. You have 10 minutes, since we ate into a little bit of the question, that's fine. Thank you. May it please the court, my name is John Carella and I represent Ms. Jeannie Diddy as both appellee and cross appellant. Seated to my left is appellate defender Glenn Girding. Uh, I plan to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal as appellant. If this court were to adopt the state's position in this case, the ripple effects of that decision would upset plea negotiations in every jurisdiction in North Carolina. While there is much about this case that is unusual, the basic mechanics of the plea negotiations were so commonplace that the public defender could anticipate requests in advance. And the final memorandum of agreement included boilerplate more applicable to drug cases. Here's why. In any case where there are co-defendants and the district attorney wants to negotiate with a less culpable defendant to testify against the others, the state rightly wants assurances. One, that it's negotiating with the right person. Two, that that person has useful testimony. And three, that that person will keep their side of the bargain. The only way a defendant can take the steps necessary to provide these assurances is if the defendant can trust that the district attorney is negotiating in good faith. In his pursuit of Ms. Diddy in this case, the state appears to be willing to poison the well of good faith on behalf of district attorneys across 100 counties. Judge Ammons correctly understood what was at stake, writing in his order that requiring specific performance of these offers when a defendant relied on those offers to her detriment ensures honesty, fairness, and candor in plea negotiations across the state. It's on page 115 of the record, conclusion of law number seven. The best and simplest resolution of this case for both Ms. Diddy and the broader interests of the state is for this court to affirm um, Judge Ammons well considered June twenty question order. What okay, so she she was she cooperated I see how she was cooperating up to the time some offer was made. 
Let's say that the state got all this information they wanted and just never made an offer. Would you be before us saying that, or would you go to the trial court saying that the state must make an offer because we negotiated in good faith and they're not even making us? And what offer would would the would you be asking the trial court for if, if there was never any kind of specific uh, terms ever negotiated or even talked about in this good faith negotiations? We'll do this, but we're, we're, our goal is to get to this kind of offer. And the state said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do this, then we'll get to that point." But I don't understand. I don't see anything where there was any specific terms actually asked for. So let's just assume that there was no offer ever made. What would your argument be before the trial court judge? Well, if there was no, well, let me, let me if just, she had done all yeah, let me, answer. let me, I think I can, I can answer. you're saying they didn't negotiate in good faith. Yeah. So let's, let's just assume they just never made an offer. Never made an offer and just because said, I don't see how she's, hey, we might do something. So, hey, uh, right. come sit for an interview. Um, and that, and that well, that, and that's, that's I mean, and that's what happened here because I don't, I don't see that there was any specific offer until January. Well, that's what I'd like to, to, I think the best answer to that question is to, to pull back right. to the relevant facts here. So first, um, let me correct something about Judge Ammon's order. Um, finding fact number three on page 108 says, and this is, comes from Bernie Conlon's testimony, that on June 17, 2016, he, you know, offered this, um, Class F felony offer 20, 25 to 42 the state rejected. Upon rejection, Attorney Conlin immediately began negotiations with the state offering for his client to plead guilty to one count of accessory after the fact of first degree murder and receive a mitigated sentence of 44 to 65 months active. The record reflects that that was the specific term being discussed okay. as they were taking these steps. There's also, um, when was that pre-trial pre motions hearing that Judge Ammons went back and looked at his notes for? The, that hearing occurred in October of 2018. And she sat in, 20, in November? Yeah, 2018. That is after the, um, after the change in prosecutors. And, um, so uh, also in, in Ammons' order, um, finding fact number nine on page 109 is that um, Conlon was testifying that he didn't, want to, he didn't do things like seek out an expert witness because he believed she would be pleading to something less than first or second degree murder. Now, if, and even if that were all there was, there would still be quite a lot here that might be enforceable at a certain point. Um, however, there's even more than that because you don't just have the testimony about the Disfonzio interview. You have that entire um, transcript. And um, I've quoted from it uh, a good bit in the facts, uh, statement of facts in the appellee brief. They were discussing during the interview her pleading guilty to accessory after the fact, saying that she would accept responsibility. There was very concrete testimonies. They went back and forth. And Desponsio, Officer Desponsio was um, suggesting what it might be like if she testifies as a witness at trial what she needed to be prepared for that might come from Mr. Kiefer as other testimony. This was both to you know, see what was um, behind her proffer to let the state explore her testimony fully, um, you know, waiving her right not to talk to this investigator, um, but also to prepare her to be a witness for the state. And that, that conversation reflects that the terms of the offer were known to all the parties in the room. And she didn't say anything that would have disqualified her from getting that offer. She said. She did not. And that's another important point here. Um, because, I mean, some of these are academic questions. Because this is a case where all of these steps were taken. I mean, I don't think you can really have a case with more concrete evidence of detrimental reliance than where you have testimony of steps taken at multiple stages over two years of plea negotiations, including steps taken to her detriment, then follow-up actions by the state. By follow-up actions by the state, I mean not only commemorating it all ultimately in this written agreement, but also the fact that Officer Desponzio, uh, Investigator Desponzio testified that you know after that interview, he met with the DA. Um, he met with Billy West and with Robbie Hicks. They talked about it. The question in that interview, <laughs> to some extent, what I was talking about with what assurances they needed, is she, is she telling the truth? Is she going to be able to be this witness? 
And they concluded that she was. And in addition to Officer Desponsio saying that, we see that in December of 2017, for the first time, she gets discovery in her case. And also at that point, they indict Zach Kiefer, who hadn't been indicted. So the state actually was taking steps to show that she had testified truthfully. She had satisfied you know, what they were looking for. And so an agreement was coming, and it did come. And your whole theory here is a due process argument that there was detrimental reliance. Or, yes. Or, or really, good, the state wasn't acting in good faith. And so she, it, it, is there a case that says that the reliance can be prior to when the formal offer is made, uh, where it's during the negotiation, good faith, and during negotiation kind of? Well, are you asking us to extend some? No, there's, there's actually a number of, um, so the case law does support that. Um, and, and, and all the cases that talk about detrimental reliance, including the ones that don't find it, are the cases, um, the state had mentioned Hudson and Marlowe. In both Hudson and Marlowe, they went through this other analysis of enforceability and uh, pure Sixth Amendment enforceability, um, found that it wasn't, it hadn't been accepted, and then they moved on to the detrimental reliance question. The detrimental reliance question comes next. That's what it is. I mean, it only comes into play when you have a gr an agreement that hasn't been accepted by the court. And it may come into play when an agreement hasn't been written. One case that I think is um, an important one here is um, the State v. Sturgill case. And that's a case where the this court enforced a non-prosecution promise by a police officer made during an interview that was like this interview that she sat for, or well, actually it was an earlier investigative interview, and that showed that the defendant had relied on that promise in providing information to the state. And ultimately, this court held that was enforceable. There were other analyses in there because it was one step removed. But if you think about that, if something one step removed from the prosecutor making this promise that they don't have authority to make can be enforceable when there's detrimental reliance, then yes. I guess it'd be cleaner if, if the state had said, yeah, we will offer you this, but let's see what she has to say and if we're satisfied with it, which it's, you're telling me that she said everything she needed to say. But here, I don't see that there was a finding the state actually said that, but you're saying it's sort of implicit. It was like an implicit promise. Like, we'll do this if we, because it sounds like the findings are, we want to offer this and she'll submit to a polygraph and the state said, well, let's have her submit to a polygraph. Is that an implicit promise? Well, it's, from it, three and four, I mean, that, well, that if it she may, cooperates with us, then we'll make this offer? It may have been an implicit promise at that point, um, but it became an explicit promise when it was commemorated in the memorandum of agreement. That that, that was, was her agreement. She, but that was after she'd done it. After she had done it, yeah. Which, she had which, done it and they recorded the fact that she had done it and that was the condition that they wanted, the condition that had been met. If she had not testified truthfully, there wouldn't be a memorandum of agreement. Wouldn't it undermine the ability of DAs to secure cooperation like this to say, well, you have to offer them something before the interview um, or they're relying on it at their own risk? Because ultimately, it, a two-page proffer versus a two-hour interview, there's some credibility determinations, some consistency determinations, like isn't, I don't want to undermine the ability of DAs to like get the information they want, make sure they have the right person before they engage in what seems like rote standard negotiations that that just that defense attorneys rely on. I think that's exactly right. Um, I think they do need to be able to take these steps. I mean, there was this the proffer early on is what shows the defendant wants to engage on this. And I think the other thing to think about here is, you know, in terms of her not seeking bond, uh, not seeking an indictment, this was a high profile case in Cumberland County. Um, it was a very charged case. And uh, the DA, I think, was asking for that to allow them time to investigate. I mean, that's what was going on. These plea negotiations started in 20, mid-2016 and then are followed, there's the, the polygraph, her polygraph that she did was already out there. Um, it then was later in 2016, I believe, that the SBI polygraph occurred. 
Um, and then they continue to negotiate on these terms. The state doesn't reject the offer. It continues to do its investigation. And what Officer Desponzio testified to was they were settling on who was the, the principal here. Um, and then uh, they ask for that interview. And all of that, you know, including the sort of not seeking bond, not seeking the indictment, not getting any of the discovery in the case, is giving the state leeway to investigate, to make its decision there. And um, the, these are multiple ways where she changed her position to her detriment in ways that she had a right not to do. I guess my, my biggest concern here is, I hear what you're saying in terms of what's good policy, what makes sense, how negotiations actually work. I have concerns that I was maybe committing malpractice for a decade in criminal defense work in you know, coming with agreements and having my folks talk with the police when I read this language in Hudson um, about it being null and void. Um, so how do I get around this null and void language in Hudson and talk about an enforceable right versus should this have just been an IAC case against trial counsel? That, that, I guess that's my, my biggest concern is, is this language in Hudson. I, I understand um, Stangel says later, but as you know, we're, if something's more on point from the Supreme Court, we've got to, got to follow that. And that, this seems like a bright line rule that they're setting out um, in terms of it cannot be reasonable reliance, even if detrimental. Okay. Um, Hudson and Marlowe both do the same thing, where they go through the steps of the process of, of deciding what it, what, whether there's an enforceable plea agreement here. The, um, that question of whether it had been accepted and was enforceable that way is, is resolved. And, and some of this refers to the, to, to the law that existed from that Cooper case that maybe there was a, an enforceable right that didn't require detrimental reliance. But in Hudson, um, the court even says, because defendant did not enter a guilty plea pursuant to the purported agreement, whether defendant's federal due process rights were violated turns on whether the facts reveal the defendant relied to his detriment on the agreement. The court affirms detrimental reliance. The same thing in Marlowe. And in Marlowe, in fact, there was an order on denying a finding of detrimental reliance with lots of findings of fact and conclusions of law from the trial court judge. Um, in addition, I think the state, the case of State v. Weinberger is an important one um, that I think the state would prefer didn't exist because it not only um, deals with uh, the enforceability of a plea that was offered but not accepted by a judge, but also that the DA can be compelled to reoffer that plea as a remedy in North Carolina per the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, now in Limeburger, it didn't, it wasn't an issue of a bad faith revocation. It was a, a different and complex issue involving um, a mistake of law by the judge in denying acceptance of the plea, but then the DA withdrew it. And the case went to trial and he was convicted and it went up on appeal. Um, and at that point, the North Carolina Supreme Court, in reviewing some of this law around plea agreements and the due process rights around plea agreements, but also in the particular circumstances of that case, found that, said that we, um, you know, do defendants' due process rights have been affected by these circumstances and we must fashion a remedy. And the remedy was that on remand, the district attorney had to reoffer the second degree murder plea that it had offered the first time, giving the defendant the opportunity to accept and enter a plea and the trial court the opportunity to approve it. So our Supreme Court will enforce pleas in these circumstances. The circumstances are just unusual. Most of the cases don't get to detrimental reliance, we don't find detrimental reliance because there's often not a record of that in a standard case. One defendant and like Collins, a plea offered in the morning and a different prosecutor in the afternoon says no. Um, this is not that case. But let me ask kind of two follow-ups on this and then go down a couple different roads on it. The first is gonna be with the, um, with the reliance factor when 
Yeah, let me ask my other one, one first, real quick, with Lineberger. With Lineberger, you had a lesser included offense that it was remanded for, for to that plea offer to be made again. Mm -hmm. Here we don't have necessarily a lesser included offense is what was, was promised. So logistically, how could this ever work? Let's say we say that the, the state has to offer this plea again. You get to the plea stage, you get to the state providing a factual basis. As an officer of the court, if they don't believe these facts occurred, they can't get up and say, these are the facts that support this plea of guilty for accessory after the fact. What, what would the state be saying in providing its factual basis if this got to acceptance of a plea? Well, I, I don't think there's any denial of the facts to support a plea for accessory. I mean, that was established well, through accessory the interview. Well, accessory after the fact, the state now is apparently under the position that Mr. Kiefer did not kill his child, so she couldn't be an accessory to her own murder of the child. Um, you have to be an accessory to someone's criminal act. Mm -hmm. So the state couldn't get up there and say she did these acts after the murder of the child by so-and-so. Um, so I, I guess I, I don't see how logistically that could ever work as a fashionable remedy in this situation where you don't have the plea being to a lesser included? Well, I would say that in this, and we're, there's somewhat firmer ground here in the cases enforcing pleas when there's the sentencing issue and when there is an issue of um, holding the state to its bargain when there's, say, a gap between the entry of the plea and the sentence. Um, I mean, the cases are... Um, very helpful on the fact that, that because of the good faith place in the state, the obligation of the state to keep to these agreements, the due process rights, that the plea agreements are generally fully enforceable over many other concerns, um, including, let's say, in State versus King, it was a court of appeals case where the state had offered to, had, had committed to return this money to the, the defendant, but actually the DEA had taken the money and they didn't have it. Well, they still had to come up with it and give the defendant the money. Um, in State v. Ward, there was an argument that the plea called for probation to be transferred to another um, county, and the policy was not that uh, probation should be transferred that way, but the plea trumped that policy. Um, the only times when a plea doesn't trump something is when the plea would be illegal, when um, someone is supposed to be committed as a youthful offender and they can't be, or where sentences are supposed to be run concurrently, um, but they cannot be run, run concurrently. This doesn't invoke any of that. And the state is fully bound to um, its promises. And its promise was to a, a bill of indictment based on information that the state has a good faith basis for stating those facts um, on the record, uh, based on what evidence it has and what evidence she gave. The state had everything it needed to do that then and it can be held to that promise now. There's nothing that would be illegal about that. And this also goes to, from Santabello and the other federal cases, this issue of a different prosecutor comes in, makes a different decision, um, can they just you know, withdraw a plea? And the answer is no. I mean, you're, you're stuck with, the, the left hand and the right hand must know what, they, what each other are doing. Um, that the promise, once it becomes binding, is binding. Um, and I think that this, that's an inappropriate remedy in this case. And there's certainly evidence in the record to support it, and there's nothing illegal um, or unconstitutional about um, a DA using the bill of information they had intended to use under the agreement and uh, her entering the plea. Can I ask you a question really quickly, and it might be a better question for the state. Is there record evidence that does say that the state no longer thought Mr. Kiefer was the principal? Because I understood it was more about the expert witness who at first maybe thought there was a different timeline for the injury and then recanted later and you know that that posing a problem for the prosecution of Mr. Kiefer. Um, well I think in um, 
Julie Hijazi's testimony, she refers to changing her mind about the case. Um, and there is some back and forth about, there's a lot more about some specifics there. Um, I can't point you to what was the uh, a specific area where I remember saying exactly that, but I think that's the gist of it, that, that she had made her own decision and then they were pursuing Ms. Diddy as the principal. Um, and of course, timeline-wise, I, I think it is important to stress here that something that came out at the second hearing, particularly with the evidence from the pretrial conference that Chad Jammons had been, out, been at, um, and the admissions from uh, Ms. Jazzy and her uh, examination, and the additional evidence from Ms. Diddy, that uh, the plea was not withdrawn until October of 2018. Uh, the state was, it was just sort of out there. Um, and she was left to sit with this and try to figure out what to do when there's a new prosecutor and she has an agreement which she has not only <coughs> signed and appeared in court ready to perform, but um, is, uh, and is just waiting. Uh, Were there inter any intervening court dates um, in the district court? Between, I know she didn't request probable cause hearing, but was it calendared or set anything? I don't, I may have to, um, That's just I don't, like, I, well, like let me, a, I'm, a nine to 10 month gap between yeah, the court hearing seems pretty unusual. Yeah, the plea hearing was on in March. I don't know if there were some hearings for continuances. It was in September of 2018 that they got the indictment um, for murder from Ms. Diddy. It was September 11th. September 20th, the state filed its motion for a Rule 24 hearing, but that Rule 24 conference didn't occur until January 2019. So I think that the pretrial conference may have been one of the first appearances. And then at January 2019, Mr. Conlon says that after the withdrawal of the plea, that was their first appearance in court, and that's when he sought a modification of bond. So after the indictment, was served in 2018, sorry, it's been, I'm, I'm just trying to think through my pretrial procedure. Would there have been another 96 hour hearing at that point? I'm not sure. After the indictment? I'm not sure um, whether there would have been a hearing. There may have been a, an appearance at, at that point, but I don't have something in the record um, about that hearing. I think that the first time at which it was clear that the plea was withdrawn and that only this, you know, other very different plea offer would be on the table was in October. Um, you get ready to hit your five minutes. Just in the yeah, I think I'll just reserve my, my remaining time. Yep. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks, sir. We'll hear from the state in about 10 minutes. <clears throat> Thank you, your honors. Um, I'd just like to pick up on a few things um, that my opponent had mentioned. Uh, with, he, he talks about, I guess, federal law, uh, Santabello kind of contemplates this thing. There's, there's no federal case that has been cited anywhere or that I have found in which um, the ordered remedy for a situation where there was not actual acceptance of a guilty plea and breach has been rescission of the agreement or specific performance. Mabry makes very clear that it's the act of acceptance of a defendant's guilty plea which encompasses the waiver of fundamental trial rights that triggers any sort of due process safeguards or protection during the plea negotiation process. Santabello says the adjudica adjudicative element of accepting a guilty plea must be attended by appropriate safeguards to make sure the defendant is what is given what is reasonably due in the circumstances. Here there was no acceptance of a guilty plea and so any language from Santabello or cases that have interpreted Santabello that were not breach of contract cases just do not apply. There's no federal constitutional right from Santabello that would apply here, especially after it was narrowed by Mabry to specifically reject any notion that uh, there's any rights that get established from just a plea bargain agreement. It's the actual, I think the language from Mabry is, a plea bargain standing alone is constitutionally without significance. It is a mere executory agreement until it's acceptance by the trial court and embodiment into a judgment. It's the ensuing guilty plea that implicates the Constitution. Here, we have had no 
in suing guilty plea accepted, there was no breach of any contract and specific performance wouldn't be an appropriate remedy, even if this were a breach of contract case. Um, so if we did find detrimental reliance, uh, what would what would be the appropriate remedy in your mind then, if it's not specific performance? It depends, I guess, on what you found detrimental reliance was. And so in Sturgill, right, it was the waiver of his Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights. Actually, it was the relinquishment of, our case is different because she actually waived them to Dispenzino. Um, but in Sturgill, it was the relinquishment of his Fifth Amendment rights and Sixth Amendment right to counsel when he relied on a broken police promise that he wouldn't be prosecuted for attaining habitual felon status. Um, one note on that, Sturgill did not order specific performance in that case. Specific performance would have been dismissing the habitual felon indictment. Instead, Sturgill fashioned a remedy it thought was appropriate to bring the defendant back to uh, the status quo, which was to suppress any statements he made that were induced by the deceptive police practices at a new trial, which if this court were to find that the Disposino statements were incriminating, which the state contends they were not, they were already before the state based on the proffer in June, then the appropriate remedy would be merely at the second trial to suppress any statements from the defendant she made to Disposino, which actually happened at the first trial. And we have, we have laws that kind of protect against this. And right, so we have North Carolina rule evidence 410 prohibits discussions during plea negotiations from being introduced in the state's case in chief. We have section 15A1025, which prohibits, it, it says specifically, if a plea discussions that do not result in entry of a guilty plea um, are not to be used admissible as evidence against the defendant. And, and we, we know that these exist because uh, the attorney in the first case actually moved to suppress the statements that Miss um, Diddy had made during plea discussions, which is included in the record on appeal um, I did not do a very good job of organizing my notebook. I apologize. That's right. um, but yeah, so, so that's the remedy, right? And so it, that wouldn't be ripe for review at this point anyway, because the state has never tried to introduce that evidence or um, use it to prosecute the defendant. Any violation of the Fifth Amendment right, if it were to occur at all, would occur when the state tries to use that evidence at a trial. And so to remedy that, it would be to suppress those statements at a second trial, um, which again, the statements were never used at the first trial. And we have a first trial that ended in a jury mistrial on the ground of, mis of, of ended in a mistrial on the ground of jury deadlock, which shows that there was not any violation of the defendant's rights, at least for in terms of preparing a defense, which is the question for detrimental reliance. Did her reliance on this proposed plea arrangement somehow render her unable to have a fair trial? Um, so we don't have that in this case. The defendant, too, cites to Hudson as um, recognizing the detrimental reliance part of um, Collins. And so I don't know if I have enough time to get into this, but how the law developed is kind of interesting. And um, Collins was decided in 1980 from Santabello, and it basically rejected Cooper, the Fourth Circuit case, which said, you know, I think I mentioned the fundamental fairness precludes the state from withdrawing from a proposed plea bargain absent entry of a guilty plea. Um, so Collins said, we're going to reject Cooper's holding and say the state can withdraw any time before acceptance of a guilty plea or detrimental reliance is shown. Then Mabry versus Johnson comes out in 84 from the U.S. Supreme Court who overrules Mabry. And then we have in 1992 Hudson, um, which says that the, uh, it, it contemplates, I guess, there's an idea of detrimental reliance, um, but it says any reliance is unreasonable because any plea arrangement containing a sentencing recommendation must have judicial approval before it's valid. So if the, under the Hudson reasoning, if the last two sentences of the first paragraph of record page 22, the part that says 44 months minimum to 65 months maximum, and it was just plead guilty to um, the charge of accessory after the fact um, to felony to wit first degree murder, if it just said that, Would this agreement have been enforceable? Um, not if it had a proposed sentence, and it was. No, if that proposed sentence was out. Oh, this, I apologize. This what you're, you're pleading guilty to the Class C felony. Um, would it be enforceable? 
I would think so because charge concessions are um, a trial court doesn't have. I don't know if it would be enforceable, but we would be in a different position. Um, in, under the statute, North Carolina, there's no discretion for a trial court to accept a charge concession. However, the trial court would still have to go through the process of establishing there's a factual basis for the plea and finding that it's knowing and voluntary. So enforceability, I don't think would be proper in that it, it would be presented to the court and then the court would still have discretion whether or not to accept it based on it finding if there was a knowing and voluntary plea and a factual basis. But if it did find that, then the court would have to accept it if it was solely a charge concession. In this case, though, it's not really a charge concession because as you pointed out earlier, Judge Murphy, it's not a lesser included offense. So that adds an interesting wrinkle to this. And like you said, logistically, it, it doesn't make sense to order specific performance of a charge concession that's not a lesser included offense. I've never seen that done ever. And that's kind of the basis for the state's um, constitutional overstepping argument in its brief. It, it, it's not just a typical plea agreement like that. I mean, there was a lot of different prosecutorial decisions that had to be made in order to effectuate this actual plea agreement um, it, that all it depended on future conditions and future f fulfillments being satisfied. And w one more thing, because I don't think you had a reply brief after the defendant argued that the intervening mistrial created authority for Judge Ammons to act. Yeah, Your Honor. Could you spend your 57 seconds and kind of just give me your your thoughts and response on that? I think that rule applies only to any decision that actually impacts the mechanics of the trial. So if the first judge makes any sort of ruling, instructional, evidentiary, recordation, things like that, that actually govern the impact of trial, then the second judge wouldn't be bound by that because we're dealing with a de novo trial. It's just like if it were a new trial ordered on appeal. We wouldn't expect for the second judge to be bound by anything the first judge did. Um, but this is a different ruling because this was an administrative session. All by itself, this motion was heard two years before the actual trial. This isn't a pretrial hearing. Sure, it was before um, it was before the trial was ever conducted, but it's not a, a pretrial ruling like we usually think of with suppressions of evidence or sequestering witnesses or things like that. And then also we have the Duvall case from the North Carolina Supreme Court that ordered a new trial and held that the third judge who um, granted, I'm, I see that I'm out of time. So in Duvall, the North Carolina Supreme Court ordered a new trial and it held that the third judge or the second judge that had granted the state's motion for a special jury veneer um, erred by overruling the first judge who had denied the state's motion. The state put on some evidence at their motion stage. The first judge concluded it was insufficient as a matter of law. The state went back to a second judge six months later and added some more evidence to the motion. The second judge granted it. The, on, North Carolina Supreme Court determined that that was an unlawful overruling because the state never made any difference showing. It just bolstered its burden of production by, um, you know, in enhancing the things it already said in the first judge. But on its instructional order, it remanded for the defendant to get a new trial with a jury from Dare County um, in accordance with the first judge's order. So that's an example of like a, a pretrial order or ruling from a judge that is still binding on a second judge if a retrial order is ordered or a new trial is ordered. Was the problem with Duval, and I'll, I'll take a look at it, was the problem that the second judge took on additional evidence or made a ruling at all? I think the problem was th that the judge made a ruling at all. I think in that case, too, the state had orally um, renewed its motion for a special jury veneer. So it wasn't a situation where they filed a motion and then someone granted a motion so they could, so they could hear the renewed motion. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and Your Honor, just to close quickly, I apologize for over time, um, but the state would respectfully request that this court vacate Judge Ammon's order for lack of jurisdiction and then affirm Judge Hill's order on the basis that she was correct on the merits. Alternatively, the state would ask that this court if it finds that Judge Ammons did have jurisdiction, reverse Judge Ammons' order on the merits for the same reason that it should then affirm Judge Hill's order on the <coughs> merits and remand the case so that we can proceed with this second retrial that was scheduled um, originally. Thank you very much, Your Honors. Thank you. We're going to hear from the defense. Five minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, 
So first, I mean, we've discussed at length that this is a constitutional due process issue here of detrimental reliance. And this order, I mean, this is the ruling from Judge Hill, this one line saying, in my discretion, I deny, was not sufficient to rule on that issue. Um, it didn't answer the question of law at all. Uh, the parties actually had to take some time to figure out if there had been anything written. There was something, the word denied was written on the motion, and that was it. They had to even find the ruling. In terms of the jurisdictional question, is it, it's not a jurisdictional question. The, the authority of the second judge to rule is based on principles of res judicata and um, the idea that we don't want chaos in the courts. If you look at the cases Duval, which was just discussed, I mean, the reason for the reversal in Duval was that as the evidence came out, it became clear that there wasn't actually new evidence. Um, in uh, Woolridge, uh, which was another one of the, the cases around this, the state conceded that its second motion, which was just called motion, um, was actually you know, presenting a different legal argument um, and didn't have new evidence. There's no suggestion in those cases that the courts can't get to the substance. And actually, in a number of the cases dealing with these issues, including um, Callaway and Smithwick that deal with the multiple orders in the civil cases, the appellate courts look to the substance of the orders and not just what the ruling is called, and it's not just a question of whether the judge has authority to rule. If um, this court, as it should, holds that uh, overturns Judge Hill's order, if we're reaching you know, that issue, or if it should be the same result, ultimately, as if um, this court upholds Ammon's order. Because if Judge Hill's order falls, and this court were to find that Judge Ammon's was in error about his authority to rule, that would not invalidate um, the rest of his order. He had jurisdiction over the case. He had jurisdiction to inquire into this issue and to take the evidence. And the determination of whether there are changed circumstances, as in Duval and other cases, should be based on the evidence that was prevented. There are ample findings of fact in this very lengthy order to show that the circumstances um, had changed. Why is it not enough just to order that anything that she said to the detective be suppressed? Why wouldn't that be a sufficient remedy to uh, cure any detrimental reliance that she had? Was there any other type of detrimental reliance that she just lost forever because of, of this, her reliance? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was, I mean, what the testimony established was that this case was taken, um, I, I think uh, Cynthia Black used the, the cane, and, and Bernie Conley maybe, taken off the train tracks. Like, she sat in jail um, for two years to allow negotiations to occur without seeking bond, et cetera, giving the state what they wanted in drips and drabs, um, her own polygraph, their polygraph, then the interview. She waived her rights to submit to this interview. She was prepared to testify. She signed this very lengthy agreement on all the things she would be bound to in testifying and didn't have discovery in her case for that entire period until December of 2017 after they determined that she'd been telling the truth. So. That really, as opposed to the cases where um, there's, there are some cases where uh, there's been discussion of, well, the, the defense said it maybe affected their you know, strategy in some way because it was a plea and the plea was withdrawn. But the evidence is that that is vague. Here the evidence is not vague. It's very concrete um, as to what was going on in that case and why she was in a much worse position when Ultimately, a week before the trial that was supposed to occur, the state then has she ever had a bond hearing since the mistrial? Has she ever sought to be released on bond or anything at any point? Yes. Well, first, um, I mean, she sought bond after the plea was withdrawn in October. The next court appearance in January, she sought bond. But of course, at that point, she was in a completely different position from when the state was not looking at her as, as a principal and hadn't indicted her, and the bond was too high for her to make. And then she was released after the, the November 2021 hearing. Um, is there, also, any, yes. is there any evidence in the record about sort of a, the fruits of a poison tree from her interview um, with the DA's investigator? Um, there's not evidence. First of all, we don't have the, the transcripts of the first trial aren't here, but that trial, of course, is a nullity. Um, and I, we really don't know what would come out of it in the second trial, but of course you have the interview, um, and it's 
lengthy and goes into detail into the the allegations and statements that she was you know that she was making. Um, so I don't can't say what may what may come from that. Um, in terms of remedy, um, the state said there's no federal cases granting this kind of remedy. You just have to move to a slightly different context. It's very easy to find. Missouri versus Fry, Lafler versus Cooper, the cases finding ineffective assistance of counsel in plea negotiations allow specific performance as a remedy, even in cases where the DA may not have known about the plea, depending on the circumstances. The remedy has to fit the circumstances of the case. Um, and in this case, which, which implicates good faith bargaining across the state, the equities really flow in one direction. Ms. Diddy did everything that was asked of her and relied on the DA's good faith. At this point, she has served the entire sentence of, that's one of the changed circumstances, she has served the entire sentence contemplated by the plea agreement plus additional months. Um, she stood trial once. She complied with every condition in the plea agreement except for the one that was testifying against the co-defendant. Um, the plea agreement still has consequences for her in terms of her conviction for a Class C felony, taking responsibility, having the duty to testify. Um, and that inconclusive question that the state mentioned was the question of do you feel responsible? And the, the, um, the testimony was that she was never going to answer, be able to answer that as a no because she did feel responsibility. And this plea was a way of taking that responsibility for what happened. And that was known to the state at the time of offering this um, memorandum of agreement? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so this court should um, strike down Judge Hill's 2018 order and allow Judge Ammon's well-reasoned 2022 order to take effect. Thank you. Thank you all for your excellent arguments. We'll take it under advisement.